And we did that by first interviewing close to 4,000 folks that we met on Instagram and Reddit and Facebook. Real investors, just to understand their pain points. And lo and behold, nobody has any problems buying and selling stocks, you know, going through the broker services side of things. No one has any issues figuring out what to buy because there's just a plethora of here are the top ideas. But they had a lot of issues figuring out how much to buy of something, how to build a diversified portfolio, when to take your profits, cut your losses, and, you know, how do I go about trading what's becoming increasingly more volatile marketplace? Boom, you're describing institutional portfolio management. I'm Stephen Mathai Davis, the founder and CEO at QAI. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today, how Stephen Mathai Davis built the AI for your investment portfolio so you can build wealth by doing nothing. All this and more on Code Story. Stephen Mathai Davis grew up in a family where he was expected to go into the buy side of Wall Street. Originally, he rebelled against this, pursuing professional kickboxing and even running his own dojo in New York. Fun fact, he has eight black belts and has started teaching his kids how to box. In his late 20s, he came back to Wall Street and experienced the 2008 crash and rebound. Along his journey, Stephen realized that his friends didn't have access to the same money management tools and strategies that institutional investors had. He became inspired to offer these types of investment tools to the average person. This is the creation story of Q.ai. Forbes Media bought my old startup, which was Quantumize, which at the time was bringing factor-based and quantitative AI-powered research to the average investor, which is kind of what I was talking about earlier, my interest in democratizing the buy side. But along the way at Quantumize, we realized People were really interested to see if we would manage their money. So after you know, Quantumize was sold to Forbes, we, along with uh, the Forbes team, came up with this idea to launch a new type of robo-advisor that would take a lot of the technologies that we were developing and enhance that and bring that to the average investor here in the U.S. to start off with by democratizing the experience high net worth individuals have when they go to hedge funds or some of these elite banks. People don't realize the experience that high net worth folks have when they go to some of these elite hedge funds or they go to Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, and Goldman Sachs, they have their monies managed. And if you look at what the average retail investor has today, it's just breadcrumbs. We got really excited about that, and that was the genesis of this whole idea of creating an AI-powered robo-advisor that's really just democratizing not only the hedge fund, but the way high net worth individuals have their monies managed. Tell me about the MVP, so that first product you built. How long did it take you to build, and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? Yeah, you're going to love this. There's tons of robo-advisors out there, and I could tell you a little bit how, you know, I think everyone's kind of concentrated in one little area. You know, there's tons of DIY trading platforms, and we weren't really sure what to build. So it took us about six months to bring this MVP to market. When I say the MVP, outside investors or outside customers trading live on our app. And we did that by first interviewing close to 4,000 folks that we met on Instagram and Reddit and Facebook. Real investors, just to understand their pain points. 
And lo and behold, nobody has any problems buying and selling stocks, you know, going through the broker services side of things. No one has any issues figuring out what to buy because there's just a plethora of here are the top ideas. But they had a lot of issues figuring out how much to buy of something, how to build a diversified portfolio, when to take your profits, cut your losses, and, you know, how do I go about trading what's becoming increasingly more volatile marketplace? My conclusion was like, boom, you're describing institutional portfolio management. You're looking for an institutional portfolio manager. We started out building prototypes of strategies that we were going to build based on what folks told us they were interested in and began testing it with real users. Tell us what you think of the color. Tell us what you think about the information, the presentation layer, trying to get you through the app. Do you think we really care or trying to get to know you? And that evolved this iterative process. And man, you know, it wasn't easy. As you know this, trying to build uh, a fintech app in the context of you know, the pure lean startup customer development framework that's outlined. It's great, you know, theoretically what to do. Trying to do this real life with money, like folks is money and dealing with a lot of the regulatory financial institutions we needed to partner with. That was a challenge, but man, it was a lot of fun to get that out. About six to seven months, getting in the hands of real users. With any MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs about, you know, what you're going to implement to start, right? Or, you know, any sort of like technical debt or even approach debt, which is a, a word I just made up, but how, how, you're, how you're approaching the problem. Tell me about some of those trade-offs you had to make in the beginning, post-feedback as you're building that first MVP and how you coped with those decisions. Coping with those decisions, I was... I used to stare up at my ceiling around 3 or 4 a.m., waking up in a cold sweat about the bets we were making. (laughs) I don't know if I got good advice about how to cope with it. But I can tell folks, you know, one of the things I learned was really being systematic. You know, I come out of the business, right? So I'm going to have a lot of biases into what to put into a product, especially an investment management product. But what we set out doing was slicing and dicing, you know, what do people really just need to have? What do you know and need to have to go into a fintech app? Well, you've got to be able to link your bank account. We've got to do a KYC check. We've got to know our customer. And we have got to be able to put you into some type of strategy. And that strategy has got to be invested. You know, so it has to be invested. It doesn't have to be automatic, things like that. So is that the best thing to do to get it out the door? The short answer was yes, because our MVP really was, do people want to have their monies managed by somebody else through a quantitative AI platform? And using that framework and working backwards from that in a really disciplined, systematic way, we got an MVP out the door rapidly. One of the fastest launch, launch of startups out of Apex Clearing, which is our broker-dealer partner. We moved rapidly integrating with Plaid to help folks connect their bank accounts. And things we left out. Manually, we were manually trading the monies. We were manually withdrawing and uh, depositing funds when people were wanting to p- pull money flows in and out of the app. We were making sure that everything else was properly running on the back end side, all manually. And why did we do that? Because we had all these assumptions and we realized that once we got into the market, a lot of those assumptions would get blown up. And lo and behold, when we went live, no, most of our assumptions were wrong. And we did everything correctly to get there. We realized when we had real people trying to move their monies around, a lot of our assumptions were totally wrong. And we began to pivot and iterate based on that. How did you progress the product from there, right? You validate that, you know, assumptions or some assumptions were wrong, right? And you needed to pivot and you needed to do things differently. How did you progress it from there and mature it? And I think I'm interested too in in how you made those decisions and how you built your roadmap and decided, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with QAI. 
I, I think it's a couple of different things. One, the way we figured out what to build was we were constantly talking to our customers. And it wasn't just through emails. We were trying to do one-on-ones with real customers on the app. We created and invested in building a Discord community where we were engaging with people, and we still do every day, trying to learn more about what they were looking for. And based on what they were saying and their requests and their problems, actually, because you're looking less for product feature recommendations and more about, well, this stinks or this, this is terrible or, hey, I'm looking for something a little bit more. We then took those pain points and then we turned them into product features. How do you build a roadmap? Because at that point, right, there's hundreds of things you need to do. And how do you prioritize them? Well, we did that by using a quantitative management tool that we built internally. And again, this is the benefit of us being quants. Well, let's list out all our product features we need to do. And then let's start scoring things. Is a product market fit related? It's a related legal and compliance because you know we gotta get that done. What's our probabilities? How confident are we in the user request? Do we have hypotheses we've answered yes or no? Is it related to funding accounts? Because we figured that was our North Star metric. Is it going to help you know, boost the number of users on the app? Is it going to increase ARPU? And we used a framework like that. It sounds simple, stupid. But it helped us quickly decide which were the, the features we should really focus on first and push other stuff to the back of the backlog. And guess what? A lot of the stuff we pushed into the back of the backlog we realized down the road as we continue to iterate and learn more from our customers, people didn't want that. I think the dead simple approach is is typically the best approach to not get distracted, perhaps with too big of a of a grandiose vision. Still holding on to what you're trying to do, but but listening to that market feedback and uh, and executing. So that that makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, it was, it's it's a more efficient way to drive innovation. And the idea really here is you're minimizing technical debt and legacy product features that you just might not need. And we're really focused on the low-hanging fruit, which is what folks really want. And that's what I would uh, share with a lot of my fellow entrepreneurs as you're building a product that it was really rewarding for me that we did that because I had so many wrong assumptions of what I thought people would want. By using this lean product framework, we were really able to build an app and we're in the process of really expanding it now for an app that people really want. And that, that they're looking for going forward, not an app that's kind of yesterday's product in a digital wrapper. So how did you go about building your team, right? And, and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? We scaled the entire company up uh, remotely, so I never got to really meet a lot of the team members. So really, a lot of the questions I was asking was, are they passionate people? Are they actually passionate about fintech? Are they really interested in the problem we're solving? Is, you may not be interested in what we're doing. You may have other interests. But man, if you're not really like all in on trying to disrupt traditional modern finance, you're not all in on the fact that it's wrong that the average investor doesn't have the same access to the same stuff as high net worth individuals. If you don't feel passionate about it, this is not the project for you. Because of what I just outlined, because, hey, you know, we're doing this lean product approach to build, learn, iterate can be stressful at times, but you've got to be passionate about what you're doing. And then I was looking for folks who are really creative and out-of-the-box thinkers. The problem I find with modern finance, and again, this is coming just from my own background, is that people tend to be very linear in their thinking. And as a result, the level of innovation you've seen in modern finance, specifically the asset management hedge fund model, is very limited in comparison to what you've seen in other consumer tech companies. The innovation happens at the strategy level. It doesn't happen at the business model. So I was really looking for folks who were kind of thinking out of the box. And the reality is, if you look at our team, 
got a team of 20 plus folks who are so passionate about what we're doing, all about, you know, the vision that we're trying to build together and holding each other uh, accountable to that vision. And as a leader of the team, I can't ask for more than that. That's fantastic. Well, let's flip to scalability then. And this will be interesting given, you know, quant background, shaving milliseconds off his trade, right? So speed and scalability are, are, are probably very familiar to you. But did you build this QAI to scale efficiently from day one? Or have, have you been fighting this as you're growing and gaining traction? It was a former. Now, we'll find out if that was the right bet, because that what that leads to is what you'd call kind of stepwise steady growth, which we're starting to see, which is logarithmic, and it's starting to become exponential, knock on wood. We'll see where things go. What we wanted to see and build and really focus on was building a product that could scale efficiently. It's not just getting a ton of users. It's the servicing cost for it, right? because that's what really plagues a lot of the challenger fintech apps. They didn't emphasize enough core custody trading experience there. So we spent a lot of time on that. Our servicing costs on a customer level are negligible. That means to make money just for servicing a cost, I'm generating a dollar per user on a month, monthly basis. I'm generating just on that alone, gross margins that are north of 90%. That's nuts. That means our cost to service and a, a user are nothing. Now, what does that permit us to do? When you have such high levels of gross margins, you can really lean into the customer acquisition game as well as building out a core team on the operating side of stuff without impacting operating margins, which is what I was thinking about as we were building a business out. So you're efficient on the on the inside, you're making enough in your margin that, that you can really go after, you can put a lot of effort and a lot of money into going after people. Is that is that right? Yeah, just think about it this way, right? If I make $10 on ARPU, gross ARPU on a user, and my servicing costs on a normalized basis are negligible. So let's just say that's $10 flowing down a gross profit. I can afford to invest more money into customer acquisition costs without impacting my overall operating margin. So if we were wrong about the cost it would take to acquire users, I'd have more wiggle room. I know it drives the team crazy because I'm an ex-financial analyst. I'm speaking like that. But that was the goal when we were building the company from the bottom up. And I think now we're starting to see the rewards of that, which has got everyone psyched on our team because hey we can really go out there try things take risks to drive virality and we're probably going to hit a few without having to worry about our aggregate operating margins because we've kind of created a business model that theoretically can scale efficiently the other side of efficient scaling is how do we deliver our investment services and by being purely quant ai powered we're able to turn around rapidly with different types of strategies and products much more quickly than it would take a team of human analysts to put an investment strategy together. And we're able to do that because we're dependent on core algorithms that we've built over the last few years that are really focused on predicting either market moves or other types of risk-adjusted metrics that we're managing. And I'll give you a tangible example. When uh, the COVID crisis hit again, and we thought it was really gonna impact the market, we were out within a week and a half with a new investment kit that was just a play on what's going on with Omicron and its effect on the market, which is using kind of advanced investment strategies. This is long shorts or short the market, low beta. It's kind of market neutral stuff folks have no access to. We were able to get that out in two to three weeks. That's pretty cool. I mean, that, that, that's scalable investment products, right? And, and I'm not recreating the wheel there. You listen to some of the leading hedge fund managers on the planet and CEOs and CIOs of large asset management firms. That's how they sell the 
evolution of quantitative analytics and the power of AI-powered investing strategies. It's just that we were able to bring this to the average individual who has access to none of this stuff. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? You know, I would say probably the thing I'm most proud about is this team that we've built that is passionate about this vision. I, I figured we'd be able to get there with the product. I was confident in that. I was confident that we would be able to build good performing strategies and build algorithms to support that. I was always confident about that. I figured if we were disciplined and systematic, we could build a product experience or the productization of investing, we could do that. I never imagined that I'd be able to build a totally distributed remote team that's never met each other at all, that I've shared the same passion, if not more, about our mission. And to me, as an entrepreneur, founder, and the leader of the team, that's been the most rewarding thing. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Well, there have been tons of mistakes. You know, I like to tell the team there's no failure. It's just about learning. You only fail if you don't learn quickly. Let me talk to you about one major one that's kind of, that experience has been taken out, but it's coming back. We had this idea of building, I would call it almost like investing archetypes for individuals within the app. It's very similar to what you see with institutional investment manager. He's a growth investor. She's a value investor. He is a emerging markets investor. She really focuses on dividends and things like that. Theoretically, it sounds great, right? You're using the concept of a union archetype and you're bringing it into a fintech investing app. The initial studies and user tests really suggested people love this. Okay, we got 100 users on the app. They were totally confused by it. Some were really pissed off about the personalities they were receiving, and they were confusing personalities with investing strategies. And I like to think I lead from the front, and one of the lines I remind folks about is, there's no sacred cows, you know. If there's an idea that doesn't work out, we cut it and we pivot and we move fast. You know, don't get attached to things. And unfortunately for me, this was, you know, my baby. But we moved on rapidly. We pulled it out totally. It's less complicated. Yes, we're recommending things based on your experience and what you're, you know, saying your interests are. But we're not bucketing you into certain categories. It was a huge assumption. And again, this comes back to all the work we did, all the work suggested that was the way to go. And man, when we got folks on the app, it was a disaster. Luckily, we moved fast. Because had we not moved fast, this could have gotten worse. I'm kind of laughing because I'm saying this could have moved, this could have been worse. But I think folks were happy to move fast because I was saying, hey, I was wrong. Let's move on. So what does the future look like for the product and for your team? Now we're award-winning, AI-powered, you know, robo-advisor or robo-hedge fund. And the opportunities for us are expanding rapidly. You know, I, I like to say that this is just the first stage in the QAI revolution. We're kind of focusing first on investment management per se, because that's where we saw there were real problems we were solving. But our goal is to kind of expand beyond just pure investment management. We're looking to move into more holistic, integrated financial services. Because the vision that we're building is the first, you know, natively digital 21st century financial services firm. Now it sounds like a lot, right? But think about this for a moment. You know, the problem with a lot of the big banks that you have today, they've got great teams that are trying to create tech products to address their customers' needs. The problem is that they're trying to build these tech products within the content, context of a larger brick-and-mortar company with legacy systems, legacy business models, etc. That's not really 21st century. 
that's 20th century and you're just putting a digital wrapper on it. And that's a lot of the problems you read, you know, you hear from folks. I mean, just summing it down to its core basic uh, issue. We see ourselves expanding beyond just investment management into banking services like credit, a buy now, pay later is something we're experimenting with, as well as other more interactive personal finance experiences. So remember, we're garnering so much information from our customers that we're able to use our AI technology to begin to pivot into different types of financial services that really will be personalized and curated for them. Can you just imagine a financial services experience that's personalized and curated to you? Not something that's you and I, you know, the same experience because we're kind of in the same credit bucket. You can really do that. The technology is there. The reason JP Morgan can't do it, the reason Citigroup, they can't do it, is that they've got this legacy system. They've got to work with it. We're able to do it. And that's where you have this unique moment now in time as the millennials and Gen Z begin to age and become more mature. They're looking for more digital, integrated, holistic, I like to use the word holistic, financial services experience. Well, let's switch to you, Stephen. Who influences the way that you work? You know, name a person you look up to and why. Got a lot of people I look up to, but I would probably say the two people I look up to the most are my father and my wife. And I'll share them both. You know, my father was a leading intellectual who came into Wall Street and helped revolutionize emerging markets business. And a lot of my habits I've learned from him. I look up to my wife because here is somebody who is a doctor, a lead GP at a major hospital uh, near us. Also, manages our entire family. I like to joke saying she's the reason the trains run on time in our household. And she was doing all of this through a major pandemic where she was going to work every day and people were really dying at work. So it's hard not to look up to her and admire her for what she does every day. And I find that as personal motivation for me. It keeps things in context too. Well, we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking perhaps a different approach? You know, I I don't like to look back with regrets. I think every stage we've made, you know, we were trying to make the best decisions we could with the information we had at that time. I like to joke saying, given what I know now, I could do everything in half the time and probably less than half the budget. But it's the journey that got me to this point. A lot of these mistakes, a lot of the stumbles, a lot of the a lot of the jives here and there trying to make it through so you know I look back and I'm not sure I would really do anything differently because I'm pretty happy about everything we did to get here including all the stumbles we made and I'd love to remind the team of that because everyone's like well we should have done this now now that we see something's working we should have done it I'm like no we were making the best decisions we could at that time with the information we had at that time there's no need to look back and retrade what our thinking was well Stephen last question so you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person, having gone down this road a bit? I hate giving unsolicited advice. So I'm not usually someone who likes to give advice unless somebody really asks me. I would probably just tell that young entrepreneur, it's never going to be easy. You're going to have a lot of naysayers, a lot of people who tell you it's a bad idea. Never give up on your idea. Anything worth having and building is not going to be easy. And all the great innovators that you've read about, when they started out, people were telling them they were wrong too. And they were crazy. Just keep believing. 
That's great advice. Well, Stephen, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of QAI. Thank you very much for having me on, Noah. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.